Donald Trump is back at Bedminster, New Jersey tonight at the end of another sad day for the country he once served as president. Anderson Cooper here in New York. I'm joined again this hour by Jake Tapper in Washington and Caitlin Collins outside the federal courthouse where he was arraigned for a third time this afternoon. And Anderson, that, that courthouse is just steps away from the U.S. Capitol, which of course was stormed by that violent mob of Trump supporters two and a half years ago. It was protected today by members of law enforcement, including from the D.C. Metro Police Department, which came under direct attack that horrible day, all just so the former president, who's now been charged in connection with that attack, could safely enter a plea. And Jake, inside that courthouse behind me, obviously Trump was taken into custody. He was processed. He pleaded not guilty himself to the charges against him. A federal magistrate judge then set the next court date for the 28th, just a few weeks from now. That is when it's expected that a trial date will be set. But also, I'm learning tonight that Trump left here in a sour and dejected move. He was mood. He was, quote, pissed off, according to someone uh, who spoke to him that came after he had motorcade. Through, motorcated through that Washington traffic, had that process, processing part that happened here. He then went to the tarmac where he was expected to take report, questions from reporters who were there. It was raining, though, and they changed their plans. He did not take any questions and instead departing Washington as he held this umbrella uh, that was handed to him by his co-defendant in the documents case, Walt Nauta. The former president then said this. When you look at what's happening, this is a persecution of a political opponent. This was never supposed to happen in America. This is the persecution of the person that's leading by very, very substantial numbers in the Republican primary and leading Biden by a lot. So if you can't beat him, you persecute him or you prosecute him. We can't let this happen in America. After that, he ascended the stairs of his plane. But I am told that the former president, one thing that irked him particularly was during that hearing today that lasted about 27 minutes was when the magistrate judge referred to him as simply Mr. Trump. That may not sound odd to anyone else, but he is still referred to by his former title, President Trump, when he's at his Bedminster Golf Club in New Jersey, as he is tonight, or at Mar-a-Lago. I'm here tonight with CNN Senior Legal Affairs Correspondent Paula Reed and CNN Senior Justice Correspondent Evan Perez, both of who have been covering this all day. I mean, Evan, you were actually in the room today when Trump was being processed. I mean, could you tell that he was in this sour, dejected mood that people are describing to me now? Yeah, there were definitely periods where he was very animated. He was having conversations with, with Todd Blanche, and uh, there was something uh, in the paperwork that was handed over to him that seemed to annoy him. And, you know, we've all seen him when he gets sort of irked, you know, and certainly uh, I described it earlier as, uh, you know, a look you saw when he was on stage with Hillary Clinton and she said something that got under his skin. And, and you know, we've seen that, that face that he makes that's appeared in so many memes. And um, that's what you saw. There were moments where he clearly looked at Jack Smith. This is something that was different from the Miami uh, arraignment because of the, the position of where he was sitting and where Jack Smith was in that courtroom. Uh, in this one, uh, he was basically in direct uh, line of sight, and, and Jack Smith clearly also looked at him, and he had about 20 minutes uh, to sort of, you know, do this uh, before the judge uh, actually sat on the bench. So, there so was, was just a lot. totally silent in the room for 20 there minutes was, before she exactly, came in. Exactly, and there's a lot of time, and, uh, you know, they, they, he, he sat there, he signed some paperwork, which is standard, it's the pretrial uh, paperwork. Uh, that happens. And, uh, you know, it, it's certainly, I think, you know, a different 
man than we saw, for example, you know, in, in the New York arraignment, where he was almost defiant. I mean, you saw him, you know, give the, the, the fist pump uh, when he was going into that courthouse. That was not the look you had here today. Yeah, and of course, one thing that they talked about so much at the end that seemed to be the only kind of dispute that happened was what the trial date's going to look like. And what are we expecting on August 28th at 10 a.m. when they're back here? Well, we're expecting to get a trial date. I mean, Caitlin, this appears to be a rocket docket. The judge has given the government seven days to report back to her with when they could go to trial and how long that trial will take. And then defense attorneys have another week to answer the same. So the fact that she wants to put a date on the calendar uh, within a month of this indictment, that suggests she really wants to move this along quickly. Now, it's impossible to say at this point if this will go to trial before the election. We need to know a lot more. One of the biggest outstanding questions that could impact timing, though, would be additional charges or additional defendants. We know from our reporting, they continue to investigate. They have more witness interviews. And it's our understanding that that is all in anticipation of likely superseding indictments. Yeah, so we wait to see if other people are charged. One thing that I was so struck by is who was in the room today, (laughs) Evan, not just you, but but (laughs) seven federal judges were in there, including Judge Boesberg, who played a key role in deciding what could stay secret and what couldn't in the documents case. And the fact, I mean, what, what were, is that normal to see seven federal judges sitting in the back of your arraignment? That is not normal. But I mean, look, I think, you know, there's a, there's a, a lot of significance about this entire proceeding. You have uh, the Capitol right over there. Um, you know, certainly the, the, the violence that happened on January 6th. I mean, I was walking down uh, on the west front of the Capitol when, right at the moment when uh, Officer Fanon was being attacked. I have pictures from that. And I walked over this way, uh, frankly, to get away from the mob. And so for the, for the judges in this, in this courthouse, you know, they've been dealing with uh, the, you know, the hundreds of, of, of pro-Trump defendants who they're having to sentence. One of them was, was being sentenced today, a, a proud boy. Um, and so I think there's a reason why they showed up um, because, you know, the, of the importance. And I think one of the big things that has happened in this courthouse is the, the, the judges have repeatedly said that they believe that it's important for, for these cases to be adjudicated before the next election, in part to send a, less, to send a message, right, to, to, to try to prevent this from happening again. And I think all of that carries great significance over what was going on there today. And also the, the some of those officers were there today, Paula, watching this. Right. I mean, Officer Dunn, Officer Gunnell, Officer Hodges, they, they came to, to kind of bear witness to the person that several of them have blamed publicly for what happened on January 6th for instigating that. They were there watching it today. It's a reminder of the real lives that were forever changed by January 6th. And in this indictment, the prosecutors lay out their case for how the former president's pressure campaign, his lies, how it all culminated in the violence on January 6th. I mean, he is obviously not charged with with anything related specifically to violence, but it's the idea that all of this helped to inspire what happened there. So it's really notable that they came as this is kind of the crescendo of these prosecutions. One of the strangest, uh, let me just real quick, one one of the strangest persons uh, to see in this courtroom was Evan Corcoran. 
yeah, who yeah. is of course an important witness yeah. in the in the Mar-a-Lago case, and he was he came in separately from the, the other lawyers. Uh, he's still representing the former president, and he sat separately from them, left separately, but he's still on Trump's legal team, and it's a really remarkable thing to see. And a reminder of what Bill Barr told you last night, right? If you're going to represent former President Trump, you better have insurance, and you can expect to be involved in some sort of grand have jury. To hire your own lawyer. I mean, right? he laughed out loud when we when we said when we said when I asked you. What is your advice? I mean, because he wasn't Trump's attorney, but he was his attorney general. Yeah. And he dealt with him on all these matters where yeah. Trump obviously wanted the Justice Department to be doing things they weren't doing. I mean, he laughed out loud yeah. at that idea, and, and but in a serious way said that they could very soon be turning into witnesses, which Evan Corcoran has. Right, exactly. And and, and have to hire their own lawyers. I mean, that's partly why he said, you know, you might have to get some insurance. And uh, I mean, it's a joke, but it's also very true. Um, and, and you certainly see that repeatedly with the former president. And, you know, the lives of some of the Trump supporters, too. I mean, some of those people's lives are forever changed because they listened to his lies. They listened to him say, come, and I'm going to come with you. And, of course, he didn't, right? Um, in the end, they're the ones facing the consequences while he uh, kind of has, you know, his legal teams and all this stuff, and he's fighting, and he's got Republicans in Congress who, are, who have his back on this. Yeah, I think... Barr referred to them is at a path of carnage, the people like yeah. that, that that Trump has left in his wake. Evan Perez, Paula Reed, thank you both. Anderson, back to you. That is a long path indeed, Caitlin. Back now at this hour with Van Jones, Ellie Honig, uh, Karen Friedman uh, Agnifilo, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, Adam Kinzinger, and David Urban. Um, Congressman, you obviously were on the January 6th committee. Had I talked, we talked about this a little earlier today, but you have no doubt that that had the January 6th committee not done the work that it did and got the information that it did and captivated the public in the way that it did, that the Justice Department would perhaps not have gone forward with these. Yeah, I mean, I have no doubt that that actually ignited them to start something. Maybe they would have eventually started something. But I think, you know, my sense was when they saw the information we had, when they realized that, and this is a big thing, because, you know, as we talk about the about the January 6th and the day of January 6th, sometimes we can get lost in the violence of that day. And it's important, but January 6th to me, and it's one of the things I learned through this committee, through our research on that, it was a symptom. The real rot was everything that led up to it. And that's what you're going to see in this court case is... And that's really what these indictments are about. Exactly. And it's like, you know, the president saying, just, I mean, think about what he said to, to just to the acting attorney general. Just say the election was corrupt. Just say it. Just say it was corrupt, and then you don't have to do anything. That enough, leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. And so you realize the rot that led up to the 6th, and I predicted violence on January 6th before January 6th because I saw everything leading up to it. But I think that's going to be driven home to the American people. We did a little bit of it on our committee, but you'll see that too in this case, which is, yeah, January 6th was a symptom. There's also a lot more to come in I and mean, once this goes to trial, there's a lot of details. There's witnesses we don't know about. There's a lot of information that's not in these indictments. Yeah, so they don't put everything, prosecutors don't put every single thing, every witness, every piece of information inside the indictment. The trial is going to be much fuller, many more witnesses. And and I think, you know, the, the way Jack Smith in his press conference, I think he framed it exactly the way Congressman King, Kinzinger just said, which is, you know, this wasn't about, you know, when, when he talked about the, the Capitol Police officers, he says they weren't just protecting the building. They weren't just protecting the people in the building. They were protecting 
our democracy. And that's what this is about, this indictment. It's about, and I looked here, on, starting on page 39, it does talk about the violence and it does talk about how the president exploited it for several pages. But really the story, the arc of this indictment and of the trial is going to be the attempt to steal our democracy, our way, it, just a free and fair election and to just literally steal an election from the American people. One thing I think we can discern from this indictment is who some of the witnesses are likely to be. And it's really remarkably powerful when you think about it. I mean, Mike Pence is going to be a witness based on this indictment. There are paragraphs in here that have to be solely based on Mike Pence's account of one-on-one conversations he had with Donald Trump, bolstered by Mike Pence's contemporaneous notes. Imagine that. That's going to happen. This is going to go to trial. Donald Trump's former vice president is in all likelihood going to take the stand against him Maybe even while they're running against each other, who knows when the timing's going to be. And looking at him as a prosecutor, I think he's a great witness. I don't have any particular views on Mike Pence politically. I'll leave that to, to you all. But he did the right thing that day. He's backed up by his notes from th- the day in question. He is, I mean, he's literally a God-fearing man. When a lot of people take that oath, I don't know how seriously they take it. I feel like he will take it quite seriously. We're going to have other witnesses, Republican elected officials, state officials, Brad Raffensperger. We know the names, Adams committee did, I think, a a remarkable job of showing us what they had to say. Cassidy Hutchinson, we still don't know where Mark Meadows is, but that's what's going to really happen. It's hard to envision, but that's what this trial is going to be. That's how big the stakes are going to be. And I think Ellie's point is is well taken, but I don't think anybody would be surprised to see Mike Pence say the things he's, because he's said it already. We've seen him say it. It will be surprising if Mark Meadows is there. It will be surprising if the guy who's standing next to Trump on January 6th, right up until the final moments, and then weeks after that, right, is up there testifying. I think that'll be much more damaging than from hearing from anybody we've heard for on the January 6th or the former vice president, because people expect that. They don't expect to hear it from Mark Meadows. So I think that's going to be very interesting to see. And, and on the, on, on, again, on, I just don't want to overstate this, but I think discovery is very important here. I think if I was a judge, I would let you know, like the, the folks hoist on their own petards and say, go ahead, have, have discovery as much as you'd like. Because remember what Rudy said, we've got plenty of theories, we just don't have any evidence, right? And so say, great, have as much discovery as you'd like, because the second they don't allow discovery is the second that Republicans will turn and say, aha, they're not letting us, this is, this is a persecution, right? Not a prosecution. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that um, this is going to be tougher than people understand, because <laughs> Trump did something unprecedented, but not illegal, and they need to stuff as unprecedented that is illegal. The part that's unprecedented but legal is there are these extra innings <laughs> that the Constitution allows for that most presidents, they just concede. They say, listen, I didn't get enough votes. I concede. That's not required. It's just a convention. It's just something that we do in this country. But if you don't concede, there are all these extra innings. There are all these other things that can happen. The state's got to certify this and the electoral... And nobody has contested every single little thing afterwards. But it's legal. You can do that. It's offensive, but it's legal. But you can't cheat in the extra innings. And so that's why it's going to be hard for people. People are going to say, listen, he had the right to do this. He had the right to do this. He had the right to do it the right way. He didn't have the right to do it the wrong way. This is going to be hard. Everybody's going to wind up getting a civics lesson and going to law school over the next three or four months just to understand what's going on. So I, but I think it's important to point out you could have a Democratic president who feels that uh, you know, uh, Georgia and Mississippi uh, stole elections, they suppressed black vote, and I'm not going to concede. I want to get to the bottom of that. That's perfectly okay. Right. 
But you can't cheat and lie and, 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 and stoke violence along the way. So I'm just saying, I just want people to understand, you're going to, if you think this is an open and shut thing on either side, you are completely wrong. This is going to be a much more complicated thing for the American people to understand. And, and Van raises a good point about the X trainings, right? A lot of this is because of X trainings, right? Like, it's like I think America is looking prospectively. We should really have a big discussion about having election day be election day. Yes. And on election night at midnight, we know who the winner is, right? And we, it, it's not three days after or a week after. People want to go to bed and know what happened. You they want bipartisan, certainty. You can get bipartisan right? They want on certainty a, in that. And that will eliminate a lot of this distrust in America. When we come out of this, system. when we come out of this one way or the other, if we still have a republic. Let's fix it, Van. You it, it, I think we should do it. But if we, uh, one way or another, when we come out of this, if we still have a republic, there are some bipartisan fixes we could agree on yeah. to just take some of the complexity and nonsense out because the nonsense now is being weaponized. And that's well, gonna be important, gonna go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, I think what, what makes me sad about this moment, well, many things is, I don't think regardless of what the resolution is when this is you know, tried and true, is that the country's gonna come together and unite around whatever the decision is. I think that's just simply a fact. We are a 50-50 country, we're a split-screen America. Half the country sees this one way, half the country sees it another. I agree with David Urban though that I think, well, I wanna see this done quickly because I think it being adjudicated ahead of the election is in the vital public interest. I do think if the Trump team says we need to adjudicate these cases in the seven states where we think there's an issue, it is actually important to let them do that, let them make the cases that have already been knocked down and take away anything that can be used to delegitimize what ends up being the resolution at the end of this. And I also just want to note, this is probably going to be the trial of the century in America. Hmm. You're talking about a former vice president who's probably still running against a former president also running, testifying against him, his former chief of staff, likely hmm. attorney general, senior White House staffers. We'd, we've never seen anything like like this. It's going to be a, a, the next year is going to be very bruising for the country as if we didn't, haven't been bruised enough. And, you know, I remember saying this in the committee, but I, I really believe it too, which is like democracies aren't defined by bad days, bad moments, bad years. We're defined by how we recover from that. And so this year is going to be bruising. And the question is when it's done, however it's adjudicated. Yeah, there's not going to be kumbaya after that. But are we willing to get back to kind of standard norms of democracy? And if we are, I think we can brag to the world that we made it through a very difficult moment. If we can't, and if it's all about fundraising, which is part of the biggest problem in politics is rage raises money. If that keeps going on, we have bigger problems. Earlier in the day, we were talking about cameras in the courtroom. Not, they're not cameras in federal courtrooms. A lot of people on the panel were saying there should be in this case. Who would make that decision? Is it just up to the judge? So yeah. it, There's a couple layers here. The district judge, Judge Chutkin, can make an initial decision. Ultimately, this is the kind of thing that would probably have to go to the chief judge of the district. But I also want to know this. Chief Justice Roberts can order that or approve it from his high perch. So I, I'm putting the pressure on. Like, let me use, I don't use this platform to, to <laughs> you know, get on the soapbox, but this has to be covered in a that. modern, transparent fashion. It will be ludicrous. Trial of century, that you're, is not You're not saying that just from a TV standpoint. If you <laughs> no, want to be actually, I'm glad you, I'm glad you, Q score no. way up. <laughs> I, I am saying that, yes, from a TV standpoint, but the American people have to see this. The American people cannot be seeing, if, if we don't have cameras in the courtroom, here's what we're going to have. Yeah. We're going to have young reporters running in and out of that courtroom, texting us, trying to recount what happens. Two or three hours at the end of ever, after the end of every trial day, we'll get a 300-page transcript that some court reporter typed up. 
and we'll get sketch drawings. It's not 1918 here. <laughs> it's 2023. We need yeah. to get with it. But, but like David said, you know, you have to allow these things to air. You have to allow these issues mm-hmm. to air. You have to allow them to try the each state, uh, you know, individually in this case. But won't matter if no one can see it. Right. right. If it's happening in a, in a courtroom that nobody can see, transparency is key here. And everybody, the American people, to have for this case, this trial, and maybe even a conviction to have legitimacy, people have to see it for themselves. And I think that there's a very strong argument for uh, cameras in the courtroom well, for that reason. Plus, we've all been looking for the missing man, Mark Meadows, whose fingerprints all, are all over this indictment. So perhaps he'll show up in <laughs> the courtroom. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up next, Jake and his team pick up the conversation, including perspective from Andrew McCabe, who served as deputy director of the FBI during the previous administration. Later, former federal judge's thoughts on the current federal judge will be hearing this case, which appears, as Paula Reed said earlier, to be on a fast track. Shortly before former President Trump made his appearance this afternoon at the federal courthouse here in Washington, D.C., we learned that the road in front of the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta will be shutting down starting Monday ahead of possible indictments there. Back now with Andrew McCabe, Laura Coates, Gloria Borger, and Jamie Gangell. Um, We should just note Mm -hmm. that it is possible that Donald Trump will be indicted again uh, in Fannie Willis, that's a district attorney of Fulton County, which is basically the Atlanta area. She's been doing an investigation into Donald Trump's attempt to flip just Georgia. This Today's indictments right. is about trying to flip seven states and more. She's been doing just Georgia. First, how consequential that we have to really compartmentalize and reintroduce the, the audience. The fact that there's, it might be this one or this one. Remember, this is be a state prosecution. She's had a special grand jury. They've already had the meetings in terms of the ones who wrote a report. And then it's the actual criminal grand jury that we're more accustomed to. And so she has said that by September 1st, we're going to know whether she intends to file any charges. We'll note, of course, a judge has already said to Donald Trump's legal counsel, no, you can't throw her off of the, off this case. She, in fact, has an interest in being able to pursue justice in this way. It'll be curious to see what she has to say, because over the weekend she did have that, I think it was a school backpack donation drive that she hosted in the county, and she talked about, look, people might not be pleased with all of my decisions or what they might be, not showing her hand as to what they are. But in the end, this would likely be a fourth now bite at somebody who previously loved the Big Apple. I'm talking about (laughs) Donald Trump. Yeah. And uh, we should note that one of the biggest and best pieces of evidence that Fonnie Willis has and that Jack Smith has, uh, they can honestly thank South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. And let me explain why. Mm. Lindsey Graham called the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, and said something that he later denied, or he said something that Raffensperger accused him of that he later denied. Raffensperger thought that Lindsey Graham had basically said, can you carry out this corrupt activity? And Lindsey Graham denied ever saying mm-hmm. it. So Raffensperger learned a lesson about dealing with Washington politicians. <laughs> <laughs> Record phone calls. Yeah. And so when Donald Trump called, that conversation, whether it was Raffensperger or his attorney or chief of staff, somebody hit record. Andy McCabe, how important and damning is that recording, which we've all now heard? The recording is key to this indictment, the federal indictment, because it is the most uh, damning piece of evidence to shed light 
on the conspiracy to apply pressure to state level officials to essentially change the election results in their states. It is it's remarkable. We've all heard the the, the quote that's been repeated many times of a Trump asking for 11,000, some number of votes. That's all he needs. Just one more than, one one more than, more than, than Biden had. Yeah, the lead on. Not subtle. Not subtle. You made a great comment because today there was a parallel. Very similar to right. his posting on Truth Social earlier today that he says, I only need one more indictment to win the election. <laughs> anyway, uh, what's impressive to me in the indictment is you get more than just that quote. They show how, over the course of what was actually a very long conversation, um, Trump basically presented to Raffensperger all of his theories about how fraud had taken place in Fulton County and other places around Georgia. And Raffensperger and his associates had direct factual responses to every single one of them, completely refuted this claim that thousands of dead people voted in Georgia. It was like four instead of 11,000. Two or something like that. So each claim Raffensperger knocks down. And that demand to find the votes only comes after every one of his so-called pieces of evidence of fraud are dismissed by Raffensperger and his crew. Then he makes the, well, just find me 11,000 votes. And then, of course, the next day he goes out and publicly says, basically, I asked Brad Raffensperger all these questions and he didn't have right. answers, which the recording proves he had very competent answers That's to every so one stunning. of those points. What's really stunning is they have this conversation. Raffensperger goes, no, 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 no. No, no, no. The next day, Donald Trump is out there saying, yes, yeah, that's what that's what. And he didn't know, obviously, that he was being taped. I mean, sometimes he does know when he's being taped and still disagrees with what he said. And that's that's really key, Gloria, because it goes to this broader issue of he knew he was willfully lying. In that instance, willfully lying about the phone call that he had had with Raffensperger. So it it really shows Trump's lies to be knowing and willful. And yeah, and anybody goes into that. Yeah, the, anybody who wants to look at read at home. Yeah. <laughs> the Georgia section on the indictment is a page starts on page twelve and it goes into into quite some detail. You know, it's interesting, Jamie Gangel. One of the individuals who is on the ground in Georgia and texts Donald Trump to tell him that the Georgia election officials, such as Brad Raffensperger, such as Gabriel Sterling, uh, is cited here, by, not by name, but referred to as the president's chief of staff. So in jeopardy, that would be who is Mark Meadows? Who is Mark Meadows? <laughs> and it's interesting because uh, earlier today I was talking to Vice President Pence's uh, top aide, Mark Short. And Mark Short refers to Mark Meadows in that interview. I want to play that clip and let's discuss. You know, Mark was the ringleader bringing the various um, uh, lawyers in who had random theories about what the vice president could do, organized most of those meetings, organized the meetings with members of Congress. And so uh, was was a leader in in much of those efforts that uh, the president pursued in in trying to convince the, the vice president of this magical authority. And so the fact that he's not mentioned, I think, would lead one to say, well, uh, in light of so many of the other co-conspirators, there must be some level of, uh, of testimony that they have from Mark. Now, what, what he meant there, obviously, is that the fact that Mark Meadows was the ringleader in his characterization of this conspiracy and yet is not listed or even uh, uh, insinuated or suggested uh, as a co-conspirator would suggest that Mark Meadows is 
cooperating. Right. No question about it. Look, this is something that we have been speculating about for quite some time. When we all looked at the indictment the other day, ding, 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 you know, it, sure. it's pretty obvious. And Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, who is a member of the January 6th committee hearings, also said uh, Meadows knows everything just a short time ago. Let's just remember, he was in every meeting, not just Georgia, the White House, bringing Republican congressmen in. And unlike Donald Trump, Mark Meadows likes to text. Now, we were very lucky. Uh, we uh, were given the text messages that the January 6th committee got, 2,300. They are extraordinary. I'm told that there are a thousand plus at least more in addition to other documents. So I think that uh, from what my sources say about Jack Smith, the special counsel's case, Mark Meadows has a lot to offer. Yeah, and we should and we should and we should note I just found it on page 14 on December 23rd, a day after the after Mark Meadows personally observed the signature verification process at the Cobb. County Georgia Civic Center, he notified Trump state election officials were, quote, conducting themselves in an exemplary fashion and would find fraud if it existed. How would Jack Smith know that Mark Meadows sent that text because to Mark Donald Meadows Trump? No, it was a <laughs> Everyone, thank you so much. Coming up, what we know about the judge assigned to Trump's case. We're going to have more on Judge Tanya Chutkin, who once rejected Donald Trump's legal arguments in a case involving White House records and the January 6th committee. We'll tell you about that next. The judge we mentioned earlier who will preside over the January 6th trial was not present for today's arraignment, but has a reputation as a tough judge in cases involving January 6th. Judge Tonya Chudkin is a Jamaican native who's been on the court since 2014. She's presided over dozens of criminal cases against alleged January 6th rioters. In November of 2021, she also rejected the former president's attempts to block the House Select Committee on January 6th from accessing hundreds of pages of records from his White House. Quoting her ruling, presidents are not kings and plaintiff is not president. Joined now by former federal judge Nancy Gertner, senior lecturer at Harvard Law School. So prosecutors said today that they want a speedy trial. The former president's legal team already appear poised to try to slow walk the schedule. What are the odds this trial happens before the election, in your opinion? You know, it's hard to know. If I look at it in the abstract and try to pretend that there isn't an election coming, I would say that this is a fairly complicated case, that it's a fairly complicated case, and and therefore that it would take, it would not be unreasonable to say that it would take a year, a year and a half. Uh, the judge is going to have to resist the pressure uh, to either hasten it improperly or let it stretch out the way uh, the, the, the president's, the ex-president's people want it to. to what what to are the say. biggest complications you, you see? Is it, I mean, is it if the ex-president's attorneys want to go state by state and relitigate uh, all their uh, election theories and conspiracies? Because the, isn't the preponderance of evidence what the, what Jack Smith already has, they're the ones putting on the case now. Right. No, it's not. It's not a question of relitigating any of that. I mean, uh, the the fact that the, the question is what the data is. Right. Imagine how big the January six report was. How big is this? How much discovery is going to be here? Um, I think that the the special counsel tried to narrow the 
the uh, narrow this as much as possible here as they did in Mar-a-Lago, but it's still a lot of data. Uh, it's still a lot of data that will have to be turned over and contested. In addition, you know, there's something your previous speakers talked about, which is really telling here. The issue is not who's mentioned in the indictment. It's also an issue of who's not mentioned in the indictment, which is virtually the entire White House staff. And when they, when witnesses are disclosed, we will see that how many people have cooperated and there will be witness statements from them at the appropriate time. There could be grand jury minutes from them at the appropriate time. Jack Smith, in order to make sure that he was cut, uh, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, probably has generated a great deal of information, which will have to be turned over at some point to the defense. So that, that legitimately complicates the timing of this. You know, we, we've been talking on this panel uh, about cameras in the court, which is not federal courts don't have them. Do you believe there's a, an important case to be made that there should be cameras in the court? I've been saying that there should be cameras in the court since I was a tyke. <laughs> um, since I was a lawyer, I testified in favor of cameras in the courtroom against the entire federal judicial conference. There absolutely should be. The, the, the counter to cameras, putting aside the Trump case, the counter to cameras is that they would be disruptive, bearing in mind the way they were 40 years ago when a clunky camera came into the courtroom. That's not the case now. State courts have had cameras in the courtroom for nearly 40 years. Uh, and this case, uh, it seems to me the public should see this. Uh, what, but the problem is this is precisely the case in which the, the federal judicial, the judicial conference will probably back off. But the, there should be cameras. There's no question about it. As you know, the district court judge has been assigned to the case, has previously presided over a number of criminal prosecutions of January 6th rioters, in some cases handing down harsher sentences than prosecutor, prosecutors were asking for. Do you read anything into that? Uh, about how she may handle this particular case? I, I don't I don't see I don't really see anything except that she uh, she understood the seriousness of this. If you recall, other judges would say, you know, this really was no no one no one uh, uh, some of the the demonstrators were not the insurrectionists were not uh, dangerous. I think she understood the larger picture here, which is not just what they did do, but what they came close to doing. Mm and was dealing with them harshly. So I don't think that there's a way of predicting that because this case is unique. We're all trying to predict what's gonna happen here, but this case is unique, so that's hard to know. Yeah, former Judge Nancy Gardner, appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, a former Congresswoman, member of the January 6th Select Committee, joins us with her reaction to today's events and an investigation that can be traced back to her committee's work. So much of what we know about Donald Trump's actions and state of mind leading up to and during January 6th, because of, it, we know because of the testimony and evidence first gathered by the select House committee on January 6th, which ultimately decided to refer Donald Trump to the Justice Department to face criminal charges. That was almost eight months ago. I'm joined now by a former member of that committee, former Congresswoman uh, Stephanie Murphy, Democrat of Florida. Uh, Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us after all your work investigating the January 6th attack. Today we saw uh, some measure of accountability, the former president under arrest, just blocks away from the U.S. Capitol. I wonder what it was like for you, have, having worked so hard on that committee, uh, to see that. Jake, it's great to be with you. and. 
You know, I'm very proud of the work that the January 6th Select Committee did. Uh, we investigated the actions that led up to and the activities that happened on January 6th, and we presented that to the Court of Public Opinion. And today, what we see is the beginning of um, accountability uh, to, for the former president in the court of law. And a lot of the indictment was based on um, or mirrored the work that we did on the select committee. But I was really grateful to see that the Department of Justice, the special prosecutor, was able to get testimony that we were not able to secure as a select committee, um, as some witnesses uh, pled the fifth or didn't show up before us or um, uh, invoked privilege. And that information has uh, proven, based on the uh, bits of it that we've seen in the indictment so far, to be really revealing. Yeah, especially that that seems to have come from Trump's then chief of staff, Mark Meadows. I don't know if you, how much of uh, our programming you've been watching, but earlier today, uh, I interviewed Mark Short, uh, Vice President Pence's top aide, uh, who referred to Meadows as the ringleader, meaning he helped run this whole conspiracy. That's Mark Short's word, not mine. And noted that since Meadows was, was not uh, referenced in any way as a co-conspirator in the indictment, that says to him that Meadows is a cooperating witness. Is that your conclusion as well? Um, I certainly hope that Mark Meadows has decided to cooperate um, because he does know an awful lot about what was going on in the White House and about the conversations that were being had. I think if he was a true patriot, he would have cooperated with our select committee. But I'm just grateful now if he is cooperating with the Department of Justice that he is providing the necessary information. We learned so much from the work of the committee, but I am wondering if there's anything you have learned that you did not know from the indictment? Well, I, uh, I think the perspective of the vice president was um, really interesting in the indictment. And in particular, the fact that as the president was pressing the vice president to um, uh, you know, unilaterally declare the election in his favor, um, that he complained about the vice president. You know, you're just too honest. Um, I think for the former vice president, that might be a badge of honor to have somebody like the former president, uh, you know, say that he's just too honest. But it also indicates that the president understood what he was asking him to do was dishonest. Yeah, I think he is wearing it as a badge of honor because his campaign is selling swag that says too honest uh, as a reference as a reference to that line uh, in the indictment. This is all coming two and a half years after that horrible day, January 6, 2021, and eight months since your panel wrapped your own investigation and sent the criminal referrals to the Justice Department. Do you think the, the special counsel waited too long to bring these charges or that, the, that Merrick Garland uh, waited too long to assign a special counsel? You know, I believe in our uh, legal system, and I hope that they took the time they needed to build the case that is necessary to yield a conviction in this um, situation. What we've seen is that when uh, people try to hold the former president accountable and fail, it just makes him stronger. And um, in this instance where it, it's, re it's regarding charges of trying to subvert our democracy, we must not fail. Yeah. 
Former Congresswoman uh, Stephanie Murphy, uh, Democrat of Florida, good to see you again. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to see you. Next, we're going to discuss the strength of special counsel Jack Smith's case against Donald Trump with someone who has witnessed a special counsel investigation from the inside. Stay with us. Our final thoughts tonight about today's historic events with someone who has a pretty good idea of the pressure that a special counsel like Jack Smith is facing, the difficulty of building a high-profile case. Peter Zeidenberg is a former federal prosecutor. He actually served as the deputy special counsel in the prosecution of Scooter Libby, and he joins me now. Thank you for being here outside of us. I mean, what is it like to be someone like a Jack Smith in the room 15 feet away from the person that you're prosecuting who's also criticizing you on social media? Well, I don't think you can compare prosecuting Scooter Libby with Donald (laughs) Trump. I mean, everyone says it's unprecedented for a reason. I mean, it's really a unique experience. Plus, when we were doing that case in uh, 2005, I think, there wasn't any social media to speak of. And we didn't have a president or a, a, a Republican Party that was attacking us uh, constantly. Um, I know there was criticism, but it was kind of like par for the course at the time. So nothing like, and, and certainly no threats that are being made now. Yeah, but there was a lot of pressure. Obviously, it was an incredibly high-profile case. When you look at this indictment and you look at the facts of the matter, I mean, do you think this is a strong case? Could it end in a conviction of a former president, potentially? Absolutely. Why do you think I, that? I, I have a lot of confidence that this case will end in a conviction, assuming it gets to trial. And that's, that is if it gets, goes to trial before the election and Donald Trump doesn't become president. If he's reelected, this case is going to go away. You sound skeptical that it could get to trial before the election. I think it's going to be a real challenge. This is a huge case. It's like seven mini trials for each state. There's a great many witnesses and there's going to be a tremendous amount of discovery. I think people are underestimating the amount of witnesses that were likely interviewed, plus all the transcripts from the January 6th committee, which I I would imagine Jack Smith had obtained uh, in the course of his investigation. All of that gets turned over to the defense, and they have an obligation to go through all of it. What about the idea that, that Trump was tweeting about or posting about on the way here, which is he thinks it's an unfair venue, and his attorney has said they're going to ask for a venue change, suggesting maybe uh, West Virginia. Is that at all likely? It is no possibility of that happening, in my opinion. Why not? Well, because the events happened just down the street from here. Um, this is the proper venue for it, and this judge, I think, will be able to find uh, jurors who say they can be fair. Now, they're going to know about the events, but the question is, have they made up their mind? Have they concluded about the guilt? And amazingly enough, there are people who are not immersed in this stuff the same way, you know, the viewers of CNN or MSNBC or Fox News are, who are just, they haven't lived this every day and they don't read about it every yeah. day and they haven't concluded. There's a lot of people, I mean, living their everyday lives that aren't watching it closely. You know, I talked to Bill Barr last night, Trump's former attorney general. We were talking about the potential defenses that could come up here. Obviously, we talked about First Amendment and that Trump was just exercising his right to free speech. The other was that he was relying on advice of counsel. This is what Bill Barr thought of that. I don't think this defense of uh, advice of counsel 
uh, is going to go forward, because I think the president would have to get on the stand and subject himself to cross-examination in order to raise that, and he'd also have to waive attorney-client privilege. And, and what would happen if he got on the stand? I think, uh, I think it, would not look, it would not come out very well for him. You think it would hurt him? Oh, yes. Yes. You agree that he'd have to get on the stand to, to make that defense? I have to agree with that, that um, I don't think he can put on a defensive counsel defense because he would have to testify to say, I was relying on this information and that's why I did what I did. I don't think John Eastman can testify because he's a co-conspirator. I think he has great deal of exposure. I don't think he's going to be testifying. So, you know, it's something to bandy about to the press now that's going to be our defense, but I don't think they're going to be able to put it on from an evidentiary standpoint at It sounds trial. like you think their arguments in court would actually look a lot different than what they're saying publicly. I don't think those arguments will fly in court. I don't think uh, Judge Chutkin is a very experienced judge. Um, is going to be uh, persuaded that that's a viable defense. Because essentially, if he got on the stand, he'd have to be cross-examined. No, he isn't going to testify. You know, he, he won't testify. Nobody, you know, he, he's never going to put himself in a position where he can be cross-examined by prosecutors in a courtroom. Yeah. Peter Zeidenberg, I mean, remarkable to have you here. Obviously, you prosecuted Scooter Libby inside the courthouse behind us. Trump pardoned him. I mean, it's just a very full circle moment. And we're, we're grateful that you joined us tonight. So thank you, Peter. Happy to. Thank you very much. It has been quite a day here, of course. It is only the first of many. As we learned today, there are many more court dates to come. And the news also continues. So I want to th turn things over right now to see him prime time with Wolf Blitzer and Marcos. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.